Right, so we're doing an episode on poetry today. We've narrowed it down to Yeats, Auden, Wallace Stevens, Carol, and Dickinson, as far as I can see. Um, I kind of have a hard time. Uh, we wrote down a list. We just talked about some things that we both happen to like, some writers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's nice to see that Genevieve has started reading poetry because she likes it on her own. Yeah. That's a sign of, you know, developing taste, and I like that. Um, what have you? What poets or writing have you liked so far? Uh, I mean, we put Yeats at the top of the list because that was uh, what I what I did most recently. That's a great choice. Yeah. I mean, I love. I don't know anybody that doesn't like Yeats. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's such a weird magician. Yeah, when I when I had that book, I loaned it out to a few of my friends because uh, uh, I I don't have a ton of privacy where I live, and they would catch me reading uh, whenever I was you know perched up in a little corner. Okay, well, um, you know, that's undergraduate life. And you learn more from the people you go to school with than you do from your teachers. That's yeah. one of the secrets of the academic world that um, you know. You know, we hold on to. Yeah, it's a secret, you know, that's kept within the guild. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there are so many wonderful Yeats poems. And uh, I think that the Irish have a vastly disproportionate amount of influence on literature in English, you know, at least over the last, you know, 400 years, 500 years or so. Um, And Yeats is just one of many, but he is astonishingly talented. And I think that the Irish version of spoken English has something in common with the version of spoken English that that you see in the Caribbean, uh, like Jamaica. There's a, a kind of dialect of English uh, both the Jamaican and the Irish dialects are extremely musical sounding. In other words, I think they lend themselves to poetry and music. Uh, not so much, I would say, the received uh, pronunciation of English that they, we get from the BBC. That seems a little stiff, but um, the Irish, like Yeats, have done very well. Um, my favorite poems, well, first, of course, is, well, actually, not just first, but one of my favorites. Under Ben Bulbin, uh, which is Yeats' epitaph poem. Ben Bulbin is a mountain in Ireland. He is going to be buried under Ben Bulbin, and uh, it's his farewell. And uh, like he says at the end, cast a cold eye on life and death. Horsemen pass by. I mean, that's a great, great idea. You know, don't dwell on death. Keep going. Uh... Another one that I like, just because I, I happen to remember a particular line from it, is called Tama Ruffley. And uh, Tama Ruffley said, I guess he's a kind of fool like Lear's fool, um, knowledge is a butterfly and not a gloomy bird of prey. And I really like that idea too. Um, it's not predatory, it's beautiful, if you do it right. And uh, then of course, you know, in some ways, uh, the most magnificent of Yeats's poems, in my view, Sailing to Byzantium. You know, that's our, our inevitable journey towards the end of our life. And, uh, you know, I'm well on the way. And I appreciate the fact that he understands and sympathizes with our common mortality. So, uh, the idea of well, I mean, those of you know the 
line, no country for old men. Well, that's from the first line of this, you know, the Cormac McCarthy novel and the film that was made from it. But uh, sailing to Byzantium is a great image for someone that come, is, is, whose life is slowing down. I don't know if there's any poet who uh, isn't interested in morality, not morality, uh, mortality. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, now that I think about it, like, like you really can't live the poetic life. You, you can't go through the world as a writer without uh, this kind of constant reminder of your own limitation. Well, I mean, at one point Freud made the argument that there were two poles in the human psyche. Eventually changed his view, but two poles, like the poles of a, of a magnet or the poles of a battery, um, and that these two poles uh, were sex and death. Mm. They're the two ultimate uh, yeah. human experiences, perhaps. I mean, that feels uh, like it's the same view that you would find in comedies versus tragedies, sex and death. Yep, that's actually a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, I guess no poet can be unaware or disinterested in mortality, and probably not sex either. Yeah, I would One way or another, desire or passion yeah. will be there. Uh, even in the uh, <clears throat> very restrained and, to my mind, brilliant poems of Emily Dickinson, mm -hmm. there is, at least sometimes, as I was convinced by reading Camille Paglia, at least sometimes when she's just seething with emotion, which is not the way her poems immediately present themselves. They're so self-contained and restrained and beautiful and thought-provoking that uh, I think that she's the only, at least until we get to the 20th century, she's the first great American poetic genius, as opposed to genius in the form of writing, which I think that would be Melville and Moby Dick. So, uh, you know, you can't go wrong reading Emily Dickinson's writings, and uh, she's a fascinating and unique individual. Uh, her poems are, uh, well, there's nothing that can touch them in American letters in the 19th century. What would you argue for the 20th century? 20th century, oh, well, Eliot, if you consider him an American, and he sort of is, but Wasn't he's also... He a Brit? Well, he tried his best to become a Brit. Oh. All right, so, yeah, he was a Brit. Yeah, I read um, The Wasteland over the summer, but that was for my British lit class. Okay. Which, <laughs> it's kind of funny when you look at it that way. But. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, he thought of himself that way. Yeah. But he also was a, a royalist. Oh. I mean, he's a real reactionary, like, wow. Uh, although I think that uh, Four Quartets is the, the best and most important uh, long poem in the English language in the 20th century. Uh, there are so many beautiful lines in that and uh, so many remarkable musings that uh, it's hard to think of what can compete successfully with four quartets. Yeah. You know, uh, what else do I like? You know, that, uh, you know, art doesn't necessarily have to compete, but another great 20th century American poet, Wallace Stevens, and I really like Wallace Stevens, and he's such a, a complicated and uh, difficult to comprehend individual. He spent his working life, most of his life, as the vice president of an insurance company in Hartford, uh, Connecticut. 
And if I can't imagine a more boring, tedious, uh, you know, horrific life than to be to spend my life in the insurance business, you know, working on actuarial tables and you know the kind of things involved. It's awful, and yet he was an extraordinarily sensitive, a thoughtful individual, whose poetry is as carefully wrought as anything you're going to see from any writer in the 20th century. Uh, he can be very beautiful. I guess my favorite is called uh, The Anecdote of the Jar. Oh, was that by him? Yeah. I, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, you had me read that. I, I think it must have been like a year ago now, but um, yeah, that, that stays in your mind for a long while. It um, does, yeah. Well, yeah, because it's, it's true. It's, it's a very odd perspective on things. Like, um... Being con- Am I confusing it with something else? No. Okay. The anecdote of the jar said the in Tennessee, the forest grew wild all mm-hmm. around. Yeah. But he put a jar, which was symmetrical, uh, on a hill in Tennessee, and it created order for, uh, uh, on, for all the uh, mm. wilderness around. I forget the exact uh, yeah. phrase. But the idea is that if you could find an intellectual and spiritual and moral zero zero point and place a landmark there it will allow you to sketch out all the other locations you might go to in the course of uh, the odyssey we take in life so it's the difference between living in chaos and living in, living in a cosmos. The cosmos requires that you have a jar on a hill in Tennessee and that zero, zero platonic form of the good, uh, God of the Bible, whatever you want to call it, you put it right in the middle and you actually can find out now where all the other locations in the world are. Which is what Tennessee is. It's you know representing a, a giant, overgrown, infinitely uh, extendable space. So yeah, as soon as you find that zero zero point, and that's true in the development of human life. It's true in everybody's autobiography that has a spiritual turnaround. What they do is move from cosmo- from chaos to cosmos, or the other way sometimes. And uh, the result is, uh, um, well, remarkable for its, uh, its spectacular qualities, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you live in a, co- in a chaos, um, well, like Dostoevsky said, if God does not exist, then everything is permitted. A good example of moving from cosmos to chaos would be Walter White, in Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah. No. I mean, he embraced yeah. the darkness. Yeah, yeah. So it's certainly possible, but it's also possible to have the other spiritual transformation, which is what we get with, say, Raskolnikov at the end of Crime and Punishment. Mm. Right? He can forsake the darkness in favor of a jar on a hill in Tennessee. Mm. And I don't care very much what you call the jar. <laughs> if you see what I'm saying, that's where I think Wallace Stevens is so brilliant. If you can find that point, then 
the world falls together and your life coheres and you're living in a cosmos. How do you go about finding that point? I know that like, that's the question that we all want to know. Um, I think that you're asking, how can you become a lightning rod for religious illumination? And I'm afraid that I don't, there's no such thing. I don't think there's a recipe for it. Yeah. That is kind of uh, the central struggle of, I guess, everyone's plot lines. Well, you're trying to reconcile, I think, like everyone, yeah. love and reason. Yeah. Right. Well, who isn't? Uh, I'm not that's our, that's our central struggle, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, um, poetry gives us an access to uh, the kind of meaningful nonsense that we sometimes find in the great mystics. They deploy, poets deploy words and mystics deploy words in new and unexpected and sometimes shocking ways. So uh, when you say you're looking for religious illumination, everybody is. Uh, and the more they deny it, the more desperate they are for it. Uh, on the other hand, how do you know when you really have it? How do you know when you have genuine insight into the world or genuine moral apprehension as opposed to just deciding that you're really great and now you have to, everybody has to follow your feelings? I would say that when you know that you found the center is when you stop feeling the desire to find it, I guess. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Um, a desire is extinguished by its satisfaction. Exactly. And if you can say, and if you quench all your other desires, um, I think you, you have found here Buddhahood. Yeah. Christian doesn't have to uh, give up on all his desires, but a good chunk. Yeah. Uh, Platonist uh, has to, of course, rein in his desires and all bronze stuff and all. But, uh, you know, we have to be careful among Platonists because there is the last, the last dangerous refuge of vice among those that want to be virtuous, like Angelo in Measure for Measure, and that's the sin of pride. Remember, however smart you are, every insight is partial blindness. Mm -hmm. uh, get over giving yourself applause and patting yourself on the back for all the great new stuff you've thought up. Um, you still don't see the whole picture. And uh, it's only that humility which keeps intellectuals from becoming completely unsufferable. Insufferable. Yeah. I think that among all of the genius types that I've encountered uh, in my time in school, like each and every one of them just deserves to be slapped over the head. Everybody needs a, a good little bath bath. I wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Um, I used to do it with you girls. Remember when Tis Brillig or Tis oh, Brillig yeah. and the Slithy Toves? Yeah. Um, I don't know, just because I like poetry, um, over the years I've memorized I don't know how many thousand poems. Mm -hmm. But uh, among these was all of Lewis Carroll's nonsense poetry. Yeah. And I uh, used to baffle my children by reciting it to them in the car while I drove. If your kids start making too much sense, you need to yeah. instill a little bit of thought into it. There we go. Yeah. When, well, t you know, just the place for a snark, the bellman cried as he landed his crew with care, supporting each man on the top of the tide by a t finger entwined in his hair. Just this, I won't go on. Yeah, I understand. 
there, there was a time in my life where I had not the whole thing of that, but a majority of it memorized. Yeah. I mean, just because you probably heard it enough. Yeah, to do I that. probably did. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I had a copy of Alice in Wonderland that had uh, all of his poems in the back of it. That's nice. Yeah. That's very nice. Um, uh, also, I mean, you know, I always, you know, whenever I got to poetry that I really liked, it's a terrible temptation I had to commit it to memory just because it was so beautiful. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the exemplary uh, writers for a particular kind of form, like Keats writing sonnets, uh, you know, yeah, I, I memorized a number of those just because they're so shockingly beautiful. Uh, the one about Homer, uh, Much Have I Traveled in the Realms of Gold, or On First Looking into Chapman's Homer, that's the title, but, you know, uh, I can still recite that from memory, I think, although, of course, since my brain is Swiss cheese, you know, I may miss a line or two, so I'll give up on that. Um, what else did we get that, you know, that's really worthless reading? Uh, one thing that I like, and this is my gift to young people out there, at a time in life when you fall in love, you fall out of love, you fall in love, and you have uh, what, what, what Yeats called the mackerel crowded seas of the summer of life. Mm -hmm. You know, you got all kinds of stuff going on. Well, one of the short books of poems that I really love, and I loved it when I was 22. Um, oh, Kenneth Patchen. Yeah, Kenneth Yeah, you Patchen. gave that one to me. I, I have it, yeah. What do you think? It, it was really great. I, I read all of it and then I gifted it to a friend of mine. There we go. Yeah, so it's no longer in my possession, but I like I would know where to find it. It goes from one beloved to another. Exactly. I mean, that book has been doing that for a long time, but they're really gorgeous poems. Yeah, I think it says something like, uh, to Mike, 1982, something like this. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what year it was. No, not, it couldn't have been 1982. It has to be the 70s. Yeah, 78, 78, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends had it. Yeah. And, uh, I kept it because I just love reading it. I was so enthralled by it, and I sort of memorizing some of it. You know, where my stag entered, entered love lives, and all the rest of that. But mm -hmm. um, he said, look, I'm never going to get this back unless I buy you one. So here, it's a birthday present. Knock yourself out. So uh, if I were to make some suggestions about Auden, who do you like? Which poems do you like in Auden? Do you have any? Uh, among favorite? Auden, I, I'm quite bad at memorizing names of poems I almost never do that if anything like when I'm reading them I, I'm paying no attention to what it's called and more attention to whatever it is that I'm annotating okay here's a, a hint mm. all right they tell you this when you're learning Greek too but it's also true when you're reading poetry you will understand and grasp poetry better if it's if instead of reading it the way you ordinarily do a text mm. speak it out loud and sort of chant it Okay, in other words, see if you can turn this into a natural song, okay? The closer poetry stays to music, the better off we are. And if there's no music in the poetry, it's a waste anyway. You see, I don't quite believe that, because I, I'm a big fan of free verse poetry. I, I think that um, there's a lot that c can be done when you get yourself beyond the strains of rhythm. Fair enough. I mean, I think that that's... Yeah. I mean, I was just about to suggest such a thing, but... Uh, you're absolutely right, but the argument that I would make is that free verse and uh, formal poetry and formal in the sense of structured, um, that they're two different genres of literature that we that in English we happen to clump together in, under verse. 
Yeah, I think that it's an unfortunate clumping together. I don't... I had actually never thought of it that way, but... Yeah, 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 they should be considered, honestly, two separate genres. Yeah, so it happens to be covered up by one is formal verse, like the sonnet, uh-huh. and the other is free verse. Um, so if we were talking about... In some ways, it parallels the distinction between painterly representational painting mm-hmm. and non-representational painting. Yeah, I think... Like, I'm also quite a big fan of non-representational painting. I, I am, too. Yeah, I, I, I like I like free verse. I like um, very abstract types of art, honestly. Wait until I give you sufficient exposure to free jazz. <laughs> Believe me, you have. You think so? Well, you're yeah. probably right. That was all you played in the car. Well, okay, yeah, that was always in the car. And I used to say, stop it or I'll play the Nietzsche. <laughs> That's right. I had a CD of Nietzsche. Ancient music, and you know that's the punishment. Um, so uh, you don't remember the names? Well, I remember a couple of names and you know sent, uh, collections or uh, whole books of Auden that I think are just outstanding. Um, I think he's underestimated, and uh, my favorite, or one of my favorite, as I walked out one evening. Uh, and uh, that's a meditation on time and on the ephemeral qualities of human life. And it's a way of acknowledging that love is an attempt to abolish time, but the problem is love never wins. Time, all, as it says, uh, oh, do not let time deceive you. You cannot conquer time. Uh, it was one of the most beautiful and evocative poems of the 20th century. It's just gorgeous. On the other hand, um, one of my favorite writings by Auden is quite different from this. And this shows uh, a different kind of genius in him. Uh, and since it's Christmas, this is a nice time for us to be, uh, you know, discussing this particular issue. Um, Auden wrote a piece called A Christmas Oratorio. And of course, Christmas is my favorite Christian holiday because it involves the birth of hope. And uh, among the songs and characters in this Christmas oratorio, there is an outstanding, uh, truly outstanding prose poem called The Massacre of the Innocents that is spoken in the voice of King Herod, the one who massacred them. And it turns out that King Herod is well-versed in the rational intellectual tradition that stems from Athens. He knows philosophy. And uh, because he thinks that this nascent child and his nascent religion will destroy reason, he says, look, I tried to be a good man. I, you know, I, I did some things, I improved some things. But I had to offer to, uh, to order now the massacre of all these children. And the last line in it is, oh, why was I born? The point is this. This is a hammer blow struck against the idea that reason by itself is sufficient. Auden was a Christian. <laughs> and as I tried to point out in my history book and some of my arguments that I make in lectures, um, 
reason is a good servant and a bad master. And uh, Auden is pointing out that reason without love can be an abomination. There are many examples, of course. Uh, but think about the uh, think about the Iliad and Odyssey. Once the Greeks sacked Troy, Odysseus, the smartest of them, steps up and says, "We have to kill Astynax, uh, who is the toddler son of Hector. Elsewise, he'll grow up and come back and seek revenge." So he says, "The smart thing to do is to kill this child. You know, he's a toddler." And uh, they all agree, because that actually is the smart thing to do. The logic of it is flawless. The problem is not that it's illogical. The problem is that it's an abomination. Uh, killing children is an evil thing, regardless of whether it makes sense or not. That's the point at which we get a disjunction between love and reason. Right? And so now, what, what Auden is doing here in his massacre of the innocents is allowing a very rational man uh, you know, with, with the case of Astanax, wouldn't it be preventing a, like greater greater death to be happening if you only kill this one child yeah but utilitarianism hadn't been invented yet and they were specifically saying this is going to save our butt he comes back we're going to be old men unable to fight and he's going to put a sword in us <laughs> and he's right. Well, they're, pro they're protecting their own children. Like, I, I'm You're right. just looking at this uh, from a different way. Okay. Well, you know, where this, is, where this theme is also found? In The Godfather Part Two. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we so, in other, words, in other words, that is not uh, a one-off. Mm -hmm. um, there it, are times keeps when... going. Yeah. There are times when the massacre of innocence makes perfectly good sense mm -hmm. as... Herod tells us in this prose poem. But he also knows that it's wicked and that he ought not to be doing this and that's why he finds himself in such a moral conundrum. Mm. This is an absolutely brilliant uh, gouge at the proud uh, ex uh, exclusivity and supremacy uh, claims that are sometimes made for a reason itself. Look, no one with any sense is against reason, but there's more to human life than being reasonable. And that's why Auden's prose poem is so brilliant. And I would recommend everybody look it up and have, it, have, a, have a read because uh, it's not very long and it is just astonishing because it echoes what we hear every day about why it's necessary for some group of people to exterminate.